Welcome to the Josiah's Podcast. This is Pater Edmund Waldstein in Austria. Joel and Elliot were both prevented from uh, being here today by modern wage slavery. But I am joined uh, by Alan Fimister. Professor Alan Fimister has been here before. Hello, Alan. How are you? He seems to be doing fine. Uh, and we have a very special guest today, the author of the brilliant monograph Before Church and State, uh, Professor Al, um, Andrew Willard-Jones. Hello, Andrew. How are you? Very well. Excellent. Um, Andrew is in Ohio, and Alan is joining us from Colorado. So the music that uh, I began with today is the transition between the the fourth and the fifth movements of Beethoven's sixth symphony, and uh, it's it, the sixth symphony is of course programmatic music, uh, and the the fourth movement is the storm, and then the fifth move the fifth movement is. Uh, the sun coming out after the storm. And uh, I chose it because there's this wonderful piece that you get with the sun coming out and the music expresses, I think, a great desire for peace, um, which in a way is the theme of, of your book, Andrew, uh, Before Church and State. But in Beethoven, it seems like you have, uh, there's all this conflict. You always have, you know, the battle between light and dark. And then um, here in this transition, you see very beautifully the piece sort of emerging out of the conflict. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, it seems like you want to argue that the Christian view of peace is as being more primary than conflict. Yeah, I, th I think that that's right, that peace is primordial. It's the violence that is the eruption into it, isn't it? The disruption, the... Um... The sin is is a is not doesn't I mean it, it doesn't have proper being right it's a it's a, a tear a disordering of the peace it's it doesn't it doesn't exist in its own right and that the peace then is 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 the thing that is the given um, right even the and this is this is something that I explore in the book quite a bit is that is that the the conflicts that occur among men are. I think can be read as rival versions of peace, <laughs> right? That they're all pursuing peace in their own twisted ways. Man is, and and um, and it's not. They're not conflicts over rival visions of violence. Far from it, right? So, so peace is is this the primordial condition that doesn't require. I don't know. It's it's, it's experience rather than needing to be explained. Perhaps <laughs> it's the violence that needs to be explained. Indeed. And it seems like um, in in modern political thought, uh, going all the way back to Hobbes, um, but you see this in different ways in, in various modern political writers, the presumption is rather that the primordial condition is violence or chaos or something. And political order is something that has to be um, imposed by by force. That's right. 
I mean, ha- like you brought you brought up Hobbes, and he's of course the the person who we immediately go to because he's the clearest on this and the most consistent. And, and I think that's appropriate. I mean, for Hobbes, of course, it's a metaphysics, isn't it? It's a materialist metaphysics where, where the 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 the, the uh, cosmos itself is a is a is a place of conflict. <laughs> and man, and so man, um, man engages from the beginning in in a war against each other and and what the emergence of political authority is not which is i think it often misconstruing of hobbes of uh, some sort of a contract horizontally between between men that then constitute a sovereignty or something like that i mean what hobbes is actually saying is that is that in the warfare eventually someone comes out on top and it doesn't really matter what scale you're looking at if you're looking at the family or the tribe or the state that there's because of the the incessant warfare, it's necessary that somebody starts gaining power over the others, and that it's precisely that victory in the war that makes contract possible, right? Because a, a contract is only possible once you have a third party to enforce it. Hobbes tells us, and so it's not a and that that's a real misconstrual, I think, of the of the social contract and the people people in modern political thought is they th- they want it to be a contract between the governed and the governing. But that's not the way Hobbes proposes it. Um, it's it's rather a contract between the contracts emerge between the governed because of the reality of the violence, the overwhelming violence that is above them, of the sovereign. Um, and so, yeah, so that that's a political theory that is rooted fundamentally in in a, an understanding of conflict as the root human interaction. In fact, anything that's not conflict is dissembling, is is tactics, strategy, right? It's it's not real. What is it you think is the prehistory of that uh, concept of Hobbes? I mean, where do you think it comes from before him? Because it is a distinctively modern idea, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't seem to be one of the uh, one of the ideas up for discussion. In the ancient world, I think you know that that lineage or genealogy is long and complicated. But I think I, I don't. I, I definitely think we couldn't. We don't have to go very far to get to um, a certain Protestant notion of 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 sin and the way in which salvation works. Do we that 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 virtue is real? Virtue is 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 um or real is is sort of an impossibility. That the total depravity is 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 the condition of man and that even even in our even in our being saved that doesn't really change right um i think so I, there's definitely a step there in the in the reformation but it, you can go further back of course and start telling the story of nominalism and and um the 14th century i think um to 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 find the roots of this but i i and, and it's not it's of course not it's not just some sort of abstract exercise of theory i mean hobbes and Locke are they're living through if you look at just their biographies what they're experiencing the the, the wars of religion and the civil war um in england and and uh i i mean there's i think there's some perhaps justification or at least not justification what was the right way to study we can understand perhaps why they would adopt such a pessimistic view <laughs> but i mean the Genzian crusade isn't isn't i mean is a is a pretty violent episode as well so i mean presumably there had to be a additional factor in order to explain why well don't you i mean if you if you, yeah i i guess i guess my answer fundamentally would be that um that they're just wrong 
um, that they're falling. <laughs> this is a temptation of man. If you make if you make if you make reality fundamentally violent and fundamentally about violence, well, there's nothing that lays beyond our power. I mean, it's it's just a it's a it's a continuation of of uh, the fall of bringing everything beneath us so that we can control it and dominate it. I mean, I I don't know that. I, I mean, I can produce a bunch of historical context and try to thicken it up and so we can understand what happens better. But ultimately, this is the temptation of, of humanity. <laughs> yeah. So way. maybe we'll, let's uh, look then at how the fact that we that we are living in a world that's been in many ways formed by uh, Hobbes and Locke and their successors and so on. How does that hamper us when we try to understand uh, medieval society? Well, because because we view our reading of society as common sense and rather obvious, right? So we go back and assume, for the most part, that, that because we don't view ours as our vision as historically contingent, we 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 view it as the way it must have been then as well, like because it's the way it is everywhere, always. This is just reality, and so we read the source material with that in mind, and so we're sorting the source material into these these categories of modern um, sociology and politics, and so we get we get a reading of the Middle Ages that has this conflict at root and which which forces us to then see a just a dissembling a, a, a propaganda campaigns of massive scales right which is what you get that the entire the, essentially the entirety of the christian medieval tradition is one giant um uh power strategy right i mean that's that's essentially the read of what the church is up to in the middle ages in modern historiography um and so, and so you have, you have, you go back and read and you see, you can see, of course, okay, they don't have states um, in, in, the, in a modern form. They don't have uh, uh, theories of sovereignty or legitimacy, but that it, from a modern perspective, that doesn't mean that those things aren't there. What you actually will want to read then is that what we're seeing in the Middle Ages is there coming to being in the sense of being of, of being um, clarified, right? Sovereignty is there, whether we like it or not, but we just hadn't quite recognized it yet. And so we came to understand it as, as history progresses till we get, of course, to the sort of culmination of history in, um, in the Declaration of Independence, <laughs> right? Yeah. So that, at least, at least in America, that's the way, that's the way it's read. So, so that means that religion or, or Christianity, because, because we deny the existence of grace, Ultimately, at least the social efficacy of grace, the social significance of it, that means that language of theology, that means the actions of the sacraments, the liturgical life of the church has necessarily um, political propaganda purposes. Um, and that's the way it's been largely read. And, and so you, even, even people who are, who are sympathetic in some ways to the church are, are often still fall into this narrative. Um, and just kind of wish the church had won that in the, in the conflict between the, the supposed incessant conflict between the church and the monarchies and that both of their attempts to build um, states, it would have been better for everyone if the church had built the state, right? That's what, that's what 
even even though sympathetic to the church sometimes seem to be arguing. I, I found one thing I found problematic at the beginning of reading your book, which I massively enjoyed, was some. Um, I th I thought you were a bit harsh to medieval historians as a group. Um, uh, not not a medieval historian myself, but I've spent many hours in pubs with medieval historians over the course of my life, and um, uh, and it seemed to me that that um, that uh, I was reminded of um, R. W. Southern's statement uh, in. Um, Western Society and the Church in the Middle Ages, the volume two of the Penguin History of the Christian Church, which is a, it's a pretty standard introductory text by a, an eminent historian to that period. And he um, waxes lyrical at length about, um, about the, the fact that the Middle Ages is defined by the identification of the church with the whole of organized society. Mm -hmm. And that this distinguishes the Middle Ages from earlier and later periods in history, and um, uh, from and and he he says in it, its widest limits, it's a feature of European history from Constantine to Voltaire, and he says that church wasn't a society; it was the society, the human societas perfecta. So I mean, he's and he's he's uh, so so I mean, I mean, I I, I recognise that that people who aren't being reflective about it, including some historians can fall into this imposition of modern categories onto the onto the middle ages but but i'm not sure it's as all pervading as you as you suggest um, that, that's that's thought. probably a, a a worthy criticism and i and i and i and i would acknowledge in my own personality perhaps a certain combativeness that leads me to perhaps hyperbole sometimes but but even but even within even taking that into account to recognize you have to go beyond recognizing the the pervasiveness of the church or of Christianity. So simply recognizing, say, that Christianity is the framework through which people view the world or recognizing that that um, all of social reality is permeated or touches somehow the life of the church, the church is there, that, that can be done from an entirely – in a way that's completely consistent with the basic political sociological assumptions of modernity. So in a, in the same sort of ways you might do it with an anthropology, with a, a tribe somewhere on an island someplace, and you can describe their world and try to provide a thick description of it. But you're still, you, I, I think that if we look at those, most of those histories in detail, we'll see that, that they're not, they're still viewing those things as the ideology basically that animates the political structure or the, you know, the frame of reference that they have. And these sorts of it can be very sophisticated and very accurate in that regard, in that, in that way. But unless you see that Christianity, it's it, that the, the criticism goes beyond that, that, that Christianity is not simply one framework through through which one might view the world but is different categorically and provides the possibility for a different type of society um i'm afraid you're missing it that you're still falling one that the ones are still falling historians are still falling into the modern mistake and and so yes i mean and i and i i would hate to come across as as not respecting what what the the, the count the historians uh, i mean my work is of course completely uh, dependent upon theirs um 
but there's still, I, th I think we, it's still hard to find a work um, that isn't making the mistake at some fundamental level, especially if you're talking about politics. So, but if, if Southern is right that the, the Middle Ages is defined by the identification of the church with the whole of organized society, and obviously that stretches, and if he's right that it stretches over a really long period of time, getting more and more intense at the centre of that period, at what, what historians usually call the High Middle Ages. So something like from either the Gregorian Reform Movement or the First Crusade until the end of the 13th century. Um, what Another thing that interested me is why you chose the, the end of that period of the most intense identification. Did, did you see, as to exemplify these themes, uh, which which miss which contrast with modern misunderstandings of of the Middle Ages. I mean, did do you think of Louis the Ninth's reign as the the apogee of that of 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 the church as society, or or did, did you choose it because it's at the end, or were you looking at it anyway and you thought, yeah, you thought this would be a good way of showing off because right. showing off this distinction or lack of it. Because That's a, um, I do think. I do think that you have, like you said, a, a building of Christian civilization that mounts through that high medieval period through the 12th century. And I, and I, and culminating in the 13th, um, in the probably Lateran four and 1215, and then moving into the, of course, the establishment of the mendicant orders and the spread of the mendicant orders. And, and then, the councils of the 13th. I mean, there's a, there's a lot going on, of course, ultimately the work of Thomas and Louis is just right in the heart of all that. Right. So it's not, um, you know, how, how, how research projects uh, begin and end up. It, 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 you, you're studying what you are studying and seeing what's there. Right. So I, I ended up in Louis the ninth um, and saw, found what I saw there, but I wouldn't say that I studied Louis IX because I believed that that period was was the culmination of something, right? And I don't know that I still, I mean, it, it, it culmination, perhaps, yes. I mean, I, 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 I would say the, there's a clarity of vision in that mid-13th century that gets complicated pretty quickly after that. Yeah, um, I mean, one uh, a sort of a rival way of s seeing what's going on there is instead of um, seeing it as the culmination of the building of a Christian civilization, um, as you said, many see what's going on there instead is sort of the beginnings of uh, the realities of modern society that aren't uh, yet haven't yet fully distinguished themselves. So the beginnings of states and uh, institutions like that. Mm -hmm. And so people will, will talk about the, the reception of Aristotle in uh, the 13th century as being sort of a key step here. You get the idea of, of a societas perfecta, a, a complete society um, that's influenced by the reception of Aristotle. Uh, and that begins to, you know, move away from um, the 
from a medieval society and, and have sort of the beginnings of a modern state. And then they would see Louis IX as being sort of an early centralizer who's sort of a, a, one of the progenitors of modern nation states. He's sort of beginning to centralize royal power and uh, which will you know be further centralized then by his successors. Philip the Fair will then on account of that, uh, come into conflict with Boniface VIII and all the rest of it. Um, so, how how would you respond to that view of Louis the Ninth as being sort of, yeah? Sure. It's important to distinguish what I'm what I'm saying. Okay, so the state, the modern state, has a history. Right? It it has a genealogy. It comes from someplace, right? And we can write that. We could write that history. And, and, and trace its components and its thinking and what, what the pieces of it are back and further, as far as you want to go. And that's the way history works, you know, all the way back to the beginning and, and, and write the history of the state. And, and if you did that, of course, you would end up um, putting an important place on the 13th century for all the reasons you just, you just um, listed. And, and that, that's not a challenge. In fact, in fact, that that I, I feel like that works in my favor because what what I'm arguing, what I want to argue, is not that you had we had this Christian civilization, and then there came from outside some invader called modernity, right? Some spaceship lands and the moder- the moderns get out and overthrow Christianity and create modernity. What I want to say is that modernity is a Christian heresy. <laughs> And so we christened, it comes out of Christendom. It doesn't come from anywhere else. There was no colonizers that came and brought it. And, and so we, the, the, what Louis builds um, and what he's engaged in building can quickly become um, the, the, the line between orthodoxy and heresy, as we all know. I mean, you can quickly take what, that which is orthodox and exaggerate it, twist it apply it in inappropriate ways and find yourself in the worst of heresies. And, and, and I think if I were, I to write a history of the state, that's the direction I would want to go um, from that the, the state is the modern state is a perversion of the Christian understanding of law and of order, um, not some new creation. No, I often think I often, for years, I've told myself this story about in which vi- less it was less that violence precedes uh, society uh, as the origin of this heresy, which I, I agree entirely with what you just said about about modernity arising as a kind of Christian heresy, um, but that it was the denial of natures itself, as you suggested before in the 14th century, of the real existence of the natures of things, which renders this concept which precedes Christianity, you can see it in Cicero and, and Aristotle, um, that uh, political legitimacy uh, descends from nature, that, that, that peace and the social order of man is, is something which is natural to man, which seems to be the, the, the metaphysical basis for the idea that peace mm-hmm. and not violence comes first. But one thing that gives me pause in this blame the nominalists narrative uh, for why it all goes wrong uh, in the period after Louis the Ninth is um, 
is the huge intensification of the level of violence apparently required to preserve orthodoxy in Christian society from the end of the 12th century onwards. And I, I, I'm trying to trace where that comes from, because although the legal apparatus for capital punishment for heresy is more or less in place in Roman law, even arguably from the 5th century, uh, that's still an incredibly rare occurrence up until the late 12th century. And then suddenly we have this explosion in the Albigensian Crusade and very significant levels of violence used to contain heresy for the mm -hmm. remaining centuries of the Middle Ages. And I was, I was wondering if, if, if that's somehow connected to what's causing modernity to arise, and if so, what, what would cause it? I think that one one thing we have to do when we're going to discuss this sort of stuff is not try to hold constants. So things constant. So for in history, everything is moving. So when you say when we say in the earlier Middle Ages, say there doesn't seem to be um, the the force exerted to to maintain orthodoxy against heresy, which is true. It, it, you know, you get the first the first real sources for for the significant concern about heresy and and, and the persecution of heresy are, are not really until precisely the period of the First Crusade and all this stuff getting started, right? Um, but that doesn't, that's not, the question is, the question you ask is, okay, is there, is, is everything else being held constant, but that, or is rather what we're seeing is the construction of a Christian civilization where what, what is being sought after in society. So the conversion of peoples, um, what does it mean to convert to Christianity? Is that, is that being held constant? Or is or it, or is society becoming more ambitious in in that, that the faithful can convert to a Christianity that maybe in an earlier period they would have been inclined to think is reserved to the monks, right? And so and so the sort of discipline that exists within monasteries becomes something that is a, a analogously approximated in the rule of society as a whole, and so it's maybe. Yes, there's more. There's more social discipline, probably. I think that. Or, I mean, sometimes you've got to make, make, not make the mistake of just us having more sources, right? But, but um, there's definitely. I think that's right. But it's because the pursuit of the perfection that's being envisioned is is greater than was once the case, and and being achieved. I mean, if you read if you read something like Augustine Thompson's work on cities of God. Um, the Italian communes in the 12th and 13th century, you can see precisely this. If you, if you view, if you see the picture he paints of these, these cities of laity that are, that are live by the very rhythm of the liturgy that are, that are, that are Christian to their very core, that their entire self-identity is, is, is positioned that way. And that the faith, the, the piety and life of faith of the normal lay person is of such an elevated degree that it's almost hard for us moderns to, to believe it. Well, then it makes sense that heresy becomes something that they're more concerned about than they would have been, right? Perhaps does that does that does that make sense? I mean that that heresy rises in importance as a as a as a component of um, of an increased rigor of orthodoxy, um, an ambition perhaps, or optimism even of what's possible. Yeah. 
I think that is quite plausible. I, I um, well, the one when I was, tr- I was trying to think of a medieval historian who I felt was really guilty of, of the charges you lay at the beginning of the book, and I, I won't say who the who he is, but I, um, uh, but I, I was the, the the one thing that sprang to mind was a book about Italian city states, which I'd been reading, and it had gone through a number of editions, and uh, there was a. a there was a ve- and the earlier editions, I, I understand from the footnotes of the edition I was reading, had had depicted the uh, religious life of the Italian city states very much in terms of conflicts of jurisdiction between bishops and and lay institutions and and the rise of various aberrant forms of Christianity and heresy. And then there was uh, there was a grudging admission which belonged only to this edition uh, that Augustine Thompson's book. Had rather undermined <laughs> this approach to uh, the Italian city states, and, and he says that at the beginning of his book, he says, "You know, everybody writes about heretics, this and 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 war with the bishop on this subject or that. Wh- what about everybody else?" He says, "You know, what what was everybody else doing?" And then then he plunges into his exhaustive study of the exuberant. Uh, piety and, and liturgical life of, of these. Of well, these, and then once we think context, about it, it's sort of common sense, isn't it? That if popular piety, popular faithfulness is, is increasing in intensity, that error would be as well. I mean, that, that, we, we, once we just consider it, it's like, well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> right? <It> seems- yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that, and that's a really interesting point. It, there's a, a similar point is made by um, Charles Taylor in his book on on secularization, but he makes it not about the 13th century, but about the the era of the Reformation. Yes, and the, the, the formation of kind of a disciplinary society where Calvin in, in Geneva tries to sort of impose the discipline of the monastery on the whole city and so on. And he sees that as Taylor sees that as kind of being finally counterproductive because the he thinks it would have been better to to stay with kind of a uh, a two-track Christianity, as he as he calls the earlier model, where you have some people who are, um, you know, following councils of perfection, uh, and but then you, there's patience with sort of the people who are on a slower track. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But there's some historians that will go so far as to argue that that Christianity, following the same sort of line of reasoning, is that is that Christianity really no one's really Christian until the Reformation. Right. <laughs> right. Because you just define Christianity as what emerges in the Reformation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One one author who I think really does, you know, completely fit the um the erroneous way of looking at things that you've described is uh Francis Fukuyama mm-hmm. and his book on the on the origins of of political order. And he's sort of he gives a threefold history of the world basically tracing first the, the origins of the state and then the rule of law and then accountable government. Um, and the his account of the rise of the state really follows exactly the, the pattern um, that you talk about. But um, maybe we can talk a little bit more about um, why, why you say that in, in the kingdom of, of Louis IX, there's no sovereign uh, in the modern sense, mm-hmm. so I mean, because the the typical modern view, which Fukuyama expresses very well, is uh, that 
it's necessary for social order that you have a boss who doesn't have a boss. You know, you need to have someone, uh, a, a final, um, a final authority to whom you can appeal in conflict, um, who will be able to settle the dispute. Um, and if you have multiple ones, then there, there still has to be one, you know, as Carl Schmidt says, the sovereign is he who decides on the exception. So if there's some conflict between the multiple authorities, the one who gets to decide uh, what the exception is, that's the real sovereign. But um, on your account, that's, that's not what you have in, uh, in the kingdom of Louis the Ninth, you have various jurisdictions which overlap in various ways, and in some areas, one person has uh, is sort of the final court of appeal, and in other questions, someone else is. But there's no um, unitary authority to which you can point and say this is this is the sovereign. This is the one who, in this territory, um, the buck stops at his desk. Yeah, th- these are these are the sorts of questions that these are hard because I think. I think we're we're often bucking up against terminology questions, right? So um, we can define a word like sovereignty in such a way that we can apply it anywhere, and that may be a really useful thing to do for comparative political theory, or there might be reasons to want to come up with an idea and notion of sovereignty. And I think someone like Schmidt is is, is doing this, um, but there's that's not. Um, what I'm arguing against is is a notion of sovereignty that I think is a more everyday notion, or the notion that underpins our actual political, um, our conception of ourselves politically. So I think that when we when we think of our own politics, we think um, we think that the state is an umbrella under which everything falls. Right. And so we may have liberties and freedoms and, and rights, but they all fall within this umbrella of sovereign power. Um, and this umbrella, this power, may it may acknowledge our rights. It may protect them. It may carve out little spaces for us to, to operate. But we still have we still carry with us in modern politics this notion. And I don't think this is any different for libertarians as much as it is for socialists. OK, so in modern politics, they they basically conceive of the state as that sort of as that sort of an entity and that. And that it's a legislator, right? So it's not simply a judge. It makes the laws that govern the way we behave. Um, now, if, if that, so when I say, and that's a Weberian, I suppose, Max Weber. And, and, you know, it's like, it's like, um, the question is, when can we, when can we use the word sovereign or the word state without qualification, right? When we don't just talk about feudal states or limited states or confessional states, or when can we just say the word state? And it feels to me that that's like Bismarck's Germany. <laughs> okay, so, um, which is Weber, right? Okay, so th- th- that period, late 19th century, Central Europe. And, and um, okay, so that's what I'm contending exists neither in thought nor practice. Um, and not, which, which may, maybe feels somewhat mundane unless you consider that, unless you consider that that, that is an, ex- that, conception of sovereignty or of the state is what's underpinning the interpretation of the Middle Ages normally because they're going back and seeing people striving after the creation of that, right? right. And fighting against each other over who's going to gain that control. Um, okay, so what I'm trying to argue is that that is not there in neither, in neither thought nor practice. What you have instead is 
is definitely a conception of justice, a conception that things, crime exists and has to be suppressed. Um, and there has to be trials and sentences passed and all of that. But there's no notion that that descends from a, a legislator who, you know, some sort of absolutist notion um, of, of, of descending order of, of delegated authority or something like that. Rather, it emerges from almost from the bottom up would be a better way of saying it. So in a certain time and place, there's a certain person who has – certain responsibilities that we would think of as being political. Right. Um, and those are rooted, his legitimacy, if we want, which is another tricky word, right? It emerges from his peaceful fitting, his fitting peacefully into that time and place and his serving of his function there. Um, so if we wanted to take some of these more expansive notions of sovereignty that some people propose, we could say he's the sovereign there. Right. If we wanted to, <laughs> I mean, right. you could you could use a definition of sovereignty that will allow you to map sovereignty onto this. Um, I don't I just don't find that I find that to be um, I find that to not be useful, a useful exercise because it creates confusion, because we, we have multiple meanings of the word sovereign. And I would rather just stick to the meaning that I think has become dominant. It seems like uh, the modern liberal response would be that um, to prevent uh, sort of corruption of uh, political life, you need to have impersonal institutions. I mean, you you mentioned Weber. Weber is uh, is sort of the the best theorist of uh, <laughs> of the impersonal and you know the the advantages of impersonal bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. If if we have you know. And you have these 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 beautiful nineteenth century depictions of justice as a blindfolded lady, right? right? Meaning she's not corrupted by personal considerations. She doesn't know any of these people that she's judging. She's this impersonal bureaucracy, and that means that she she'll be fair, right? Because she her own interests aren't uh, implicated in it. So it's better to have kind of this central um, state authority with this impersonal bureaucracy that uh, can come in. And uh, use objective measures to judge, you know, who's in the right in a in a particular dispute, rather than having some local authority who um, who knows the people who are involved and who can be swayed by by passion and by his relation to them. You know, this person is his his nephew's servant or whatever, and uh, the other person is his the you know the. Uh, some enemy of his his servant, and so he's going to, of course, you know, be partial and and uh, give the judgment to the servant of his friend rather than of his enemy. How how would you respond to that sort of objection? Yeah, that's her sort of praise of the impersonal. Right. So, I would start by saying the objection of corruption or the potential bias per is. So, so clearly the case, I mean, so clearly their concern in the time. So if you just a, a, a glance through the legislation of the period is the, the corruption and partiality of the people who hold power is what they're obsessed about, right? So, so your concern or our concern as moderns was theirs, right? Okay, so, so we can see it there. I mean, that, this is what the enquêteurs, these these investigators that I write about, are precisely what their what their purpose is 
is to go investigate local uh, local authorities and see if they're behaving that way. So there is that, and that, and that's just the nature of of, of power, I think, regardless of, of the the, per, the particular um, construction of it. But okay, so here here's the here's the the major distinctions. The liberal argument would be okay, given that that's the case with humanity, then. Um, uh, an apparatus of impersonal institutions, uh, universal institutions is the best way to deal with that condition of humanity. Right. Okay. Right. Um, my argument would be, let's try to articulate. I, I'll try to, this is a hard one. Um, in order to construct that impersonal, rational, um, bureaucratic apparatus, what you actually have to do is map onto the world of real people who are in real relations, a self-referential system of, of personae, legal personae who have certain rights and responsibilities and properties that exist with certain legally defined terms and, you know, uh, entity, a certain legal entity, which is types of property. And you have to map that upon all of society so that everything everything can be kind of registered in this universal universal registry okay right. and then when you face a problem you go and you look at the persons or the and the properties and all you see in looking at those are those le- previously mapped on um, in registered personae or properties Right. And the, and the real people and their real relations are opaque, are invisible to the state. It must be. They must be. Right. So that what I'm well, I think that's an act of evasion. <laughs> OK, so what you're 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 actually that when when two persons who know each other actually know each other two neighbors, say, and yeah. they have a real relationship with each other and they coexist in a certain way and then they get into a conflict and they retreat into the abstract bureaucratic registry of all things and people to fight a lawsuit against each other, that that's actually a fictitious strategy of power that they're deploying against each other. Okay, so their their real relationship is actually as Frank and Joe, the neighbors. Okay, so, and the state doesn't see that. The state has no idea who they are and doesn't care, can't know who they are. There's no means of knowing who they are. I, I think that works against your argument in some ways because um, the enquêteur that you you mention uh, uh, talk about a great deal in the book and and Parlement that, that uh, Louis the Ninth creates seem like the, and as you say you suggested just now that they arose out of a concern about the corruptibility of judicial processes and uh, but they are they are both entities which are on a national or supranational level entering into the particular in order to try and avoid uh, this kind of uh, corruption. But if you go across the channel, uh, it seems to me, speaking not as a medieval historian, but from my, uh, yeah, from my dipping my toe in here and there. That's an English chauvinist. (laughs) (laughs) You have many of these functions are performed by the jury and and the manorial jury in terms of being a witness to custom. And uh, which seems to express more the the idea of, of treating these these two individuals as Frank and Joe, and not as two abstractions. 
Uh, and another thing that occurred to me in that context is the fact that the English common law system, because uh, you, you talk in the book about about the fact that because peace pre-exists, when hard law appears to deal with one of these conflicts at the, at the concrete particular level, that's a patch, uh, a patch of hard law on the pre-existing um, peace, which doesn't need to be there in the form of right. hard law. And that, that seems precisely how the common law system works, that for matters which pertain to contract and, and, and relations and easements and property rights and, and, and natural justice, you don't need hard law because you, you, you just have natural reason uh, and, and what really is happening on the ground and precedent. So, so there are no hard laws about these things. There's just a huge backlog of previous decisions based on concrete instances. Whereas it seems that France is precisely developing in the opposite direction with these kind of, these kind of decisions being made by an, a, a quasi-national institution in Paris uh, with, with these enquêteurs going in and entering in rather than drawing from the knowledge of the local custom like the manorial jury does. No, I think we're in agreement. And I, and I think that, that's a, that, that there's maybe a, mis, a misreading of what's happening in France because of what happens in France later. <laughs> so I, when, 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 they, when, when, the, when uh, Louis' apparatus in whatever form enters into a, a conflict, what they are after is the particulars of the conflict in that in that time and place, and all of the the, the traditional customary um, uh, components of that. So they have no this, is, and this is the great distinction between that and liberalism is that is that they they don't they can't even see the piece until there's a rupture. And what I mean is like that the form that it's taken, the way these people are living together as real people, is not something that's even visible to the governmental apparatus until there's a conflict and then it enters into it and tries to determine what was the peace prior to the conflict and then and then tries to to do what it can to reestablish that peace and so that's where law um, rights these sorts of things make appearances and and you can see this you can see this in a fascinating way when you can see that something like a right a right is is, is in, in the face of a conflict between two persons, one of the ways it might be solved is by the, essentially the granting of a right to one of them against the other. And that right, though, is literally forgotten once peace is restored between them. So you can have a right, two people, could, one could have a right at one point, and that right only persists for as long as the conflict festers. Right. And and it, and it dissolves. And, and, and this is the way in which they go back and, well, how long has it been since that right was 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 used? How long has it been since there was any opposition to behaving a certain way or that way? And if it's long enough, then whatever, then that is no longer the piece. The piece has, has evolved, has lived to change into something else. Um, and so things like law, things like rights, things like contracts, these things are always fleeting, temporary. And I and that, and that I think that's as much the case in in France and what you're describing in England is just is is a, is a different form of the same, I think the same conception of how government behaves, what government is. I mean, like, yeah. So at one point you talk about about how the as you did today you talk about how there is a narrative of a genealogy of the state, but 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 that's not the only story and it's not the main story and you're trying to tell the main story at the time 
uh, in the 13th century, rather than rather than looking at the at the, at the early story of the emergence of the state, and 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 this divergence does begin to occur between between uh, the two sides of the channel, and um, and I'm wondering I'm wondering do you th- do you, part of the traditional story of the emergence of the state is is the is the rediscovery of the digest in Italy in the in the 11th century, and um, and and the incorporation of, of of late Roman law into the structure of European states, and I'm wondering whether you, whether you because you don't really comment on 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 because you don't want to talk about that genealogy. You want to talk about the real mm. story in the 13th century. But I wonder if if you think that part of that genealogical story is sound. Because um, I mean, uh, there's often an aphorism you hear uh, in England. Anyway, I don't know elsewhere in common law countries that under the common law you have liberties. That is, you have uh, you, you, there is society already exists, and you're free to do those things which you have mm-hmm. customarily done, uh, and only insofar as that's then restricted by positive law. Whereas in in civilian law jurisdictions, people have rights. That is a list of things they're allowed to do by the government, and they should ask permission for anything else that they f- that they feel like doing. And, and do you do you think that comes from the the slow tide of incoming tide of Roman law, or do you think there's some other reason for this later divergence, which wasn't there in Saint Louis' time? Um, I think th- this is outside my field of expertise, so I'll speak as just as <laughs> just as myself here i i think that it's certainly the, it has to be the case that the study of roman law um and not just of roman law but of of classical civilization i think um in the, i i would i would be tempted to push it a little later um and to see yes it's it's beginning in the in the in a serious way in the 14th century but may, perhaps as late as is into the the humanists of the renaissance where it becomes elevated studied um made sort of normative for political thinking um uh, you know and that and that's not in any way isolated from movements in theology that complement it um and it, you know, so so I I think it's very it's a very complicated, but definitely the case that what you're saying is true. I think that that the Roman law provides the material, um, not not simply provides the rational legal tools to to talk about a state, but helps helps uh, pr- prompt it. Right. Uh, I would I would want to push back a little bit on on your point, Alan, because well, in a previous episode with with. Uh, Pedro Izquierdo, we talked about the Roman, the, the idea of right in Roman law. And Pedro argued, I thought, very um, convincingly that what right means for the Roman jurists, even especially the early ones, but even the later Roman jurists, is the object of the virtue of justice. So the, the thing that is due to someone else in justice. And it seems to me that is, that's consistent with the idea of liberties under common law or or rights um, in the, the in the way that the Parlement in, in Louis the kingdom talks about them, and it's different from the idea of rights as you know these permissions from the government that you get in early modern thinking. Yeah, I, I don't want to accuse uh, classical Roman law of that charge. It does seem to me that it's that this this absolutizing of, and, and and perhaps in some ways the emergence of this idea of the state is entangled with what Justinian does to Roman law right. 
in order to justify Byzantine autocracy in the context of a, of a very differentiated legal system inherited from the Republic and the early empire. Uh, so so I, I'm not trying to claim that, 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 that the, the problem enters in through through the classical model of Roman law. I, I, I suspect part of the problem is that is that this what this wonderful uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Dark Ages version of <laughs> Roman law produced by Justinian is discovered and it's inter- terribly convenient and it sweeps all before it. But in some ways, it's it's a less authentic expression of the Roman law than the messier. Um, the messier earlier version, which you would need an enormous library in order to in order to apply, which they just don't have because all those books are gone. Okay, so before we before we run out of time, I want to go move now to the question of um, the relation of spiritual and temporal authority. Um, the The title of your book is "Before Church and State," um, and the thesis is that you don't have two institutions, the church and the state, vying for uh, power. Um, But you have various kinds of authorities working together towards a common end. You have uh, Louis IX wielding the temporal sword, and then you've got, um, uh, uh, who's the pope at the time? Uh, Uh, Clement IV, mostly. Yeah, Clement IV wielding the spiritual sword Mm -hmm. and so on. And the, they're working together towards a common end. And one of the things that I thought was was really uh, really illuminating about your book is the way you you tie that to um, the senses of scripture mm-hmm. and uh, seeing how you have a connection between the the literal sense and then the spiritual sense. The, there's a similar uh, sort of dynamic relation between um, temporal authority and spiritual authority. Maybe you can you can uh, say something about that. Sure. I mean, the the normal way, the typical modern way of reading the senses of scripture is is as a sort of parallel glosses on the text. So you have a certain text, and you have the literal meaning of it, then you have the allegorical meaning of it, and then you have the tropological, the moral meaning, and then you have the the anagogical meaning, right? And that and that they're kind of parallel meanings of this text. And that I don't think that's totally wrong, right? But but what, what I think more characterizes the dynamic of the, of the 12th century into the 13th century is one of hierarchical dynamism. So the, the literal sense is the historical sense. Its meaning is the allegorical. So it becomes really itself as it's understood allegorically. And then the allegorical, though, is ultimately um, – it's ultimately becomes it fully itself. So the, the Christ, the Christ in the history becomes Christ in the reader, in the tropological when these internalized and it becomes in a sense, then the history, which is elevated by the allegorical is then internalized into the reader and the tropological. And so it's more perfect than it was when it was merely history. Right. And then all of this culminates in the movement to contemplation and the, in the anagogical in heaven, when all the, the senses are fulfilled in the ultimate. So in a sense, all the senses are, ultimately the anagogical right okay so the there's a there's a parallel move here in in the power that the the temporal and the spiritual power where the temporal power is there's an ascent to god that the society is being envisioned as a movement from from um 
the state of fallen nature, right? It's the state of sin, the condition that we find ourselves in to um, redemption, to salvation. And it moves through these stages. So you have the, the merely historical, the world of things and, and, and events, which is a real world and it's tangible and you can touch it and there's no denying its importance, right? And then, and then it, it gains its meaning though through faith and the allegorical. And so how is, the, how is this world interpreted through scripture um, and that's also that's also the realm we might think of of the old law, right? The allegorical, um, so the the realm of positive law, where there's a um, the, the 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 promulgation of of the natural law as a particular law uh, is occurring in that sort of allegorical stage. Um, but the people who are living under it are they they, they make their minds are maybe being illuminated by the truth and by the law, but they're no longer they're not yet moving into the tropological, the moral into charity, right? So faith moving to charity, and so but that move is the move from the old to the new, and it's the move that requires sanctifying grace, the grace of the gospel, the grace of Christ, and so you have then the spiritual power, which is. Um, the, the the dispensing of grace and the preaching of the gospel in a way that isn't external but but is really understood as as prophetic as the preaching of the holy spirit through the the clergy and so you have again this dual intellectual um the intellect and the will moving together from this preliminary allegorical into a moral or tropological sense and all of its culminating in contemplation or perfection in heaven so you have society as a whole it, the 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 the, the the path, the narrative, the plot of salvation history, which is exemplified or understood in the senses of scripture, is is also then present in reality, the social reality in which they're living. Yeah, um, that makes a lot of sense. The it seems like the the temporal power um, that continue continues to exist in the church. Uh, distinct from spiritual power sort of in this between time between the ascension and the second coming. So Pope St. Gelasius, the first in in a letter that's constantly quoted throughout the middle ages by later popes, he um, writing to the Byzantine emperor um, distinguishes the, the, um, authority of, of pontiffs and the power of the royal power. Mm-hmm. And in, in Tractate 4, he'll say that the reason why Christ distinguished these two was uh, on account of pride. That is, given the, the state of, of humanity still wounded by sin, though in the process of redemption, it's good to have the, the spiritual sword and the temporal sword, as they'll later come to be called wielded by different persons. Right. Um, have them uh, cooperating towards uh, towards the same end. And then in the after the second coming, of course, all of that, as it were, will be handed over to Christ who has uh, everything together. Right. But in a way, those, the two are cooperating in a, to prepare the, the, the second coming in a sense. Yeah. So that is um, very much in agreement with what I'm seeing. So the the wielding to the spiritual and the temporal powers are, of course, ultimately derived from the priesthood and kingship of Christ himself of, and, and, and of humanity. Right. I mean, the, the kingship and priesthood of Adam in the garden. Right. And, and so 
there is a, there is a the new the old Adam and the new Adam and the, and maybe Melchizedek in the middle there, where you have um, the unity of the priesthood and the, and the and the kingship as the as the primordial state as the as the but the, but there's a fittingness there's a fittingness to the division of these into different different powers different orders of men um in the same way and really a very parallel to the fittingness of the division of the old and the new testament um yeah and 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 that so I, I, I actually, I think there's a direct parallel. And I think that the, the commentators of the middle ages see this where the two swords are as often exegeted as the old and new Testament, as they are the secular and spiritual power. Um, and so I, I, I think, I think that's the, the connection. There's a, there's a, a, a real fittingness. It's not a, it's not a, um, Oh, you know, contingent thing that could have easily have been otherwise. I mean, when we say fittingness, we mean something powerful by that, right? Right. There is a lot of confusion of personnel. This is a strange thing about the Western Middle Ages, and, and you seemed more comfortable with that in the book than I always feel about it. There's a confusion of 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 um, of, of clerics performing temporal functions and more even more problematically layman performing spiritual functions which you don't find in the church at all prior to the barbarian migrations and uh, as far as i know never occurs in byzantium and isn't allowed in modern canon law and also it doesn't even seem to be there doesn't even seem to be room for it in unam sanctam boniface the eighth is very and he's only summarizing the papal canonical tradition before him. Really, he he he's very clear that you know kings and soldiers exercise the temporal sword, and and priests exercise the spiritual sword. And when our Lord told Saint Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane to put up thy sword into thy scabbard, he was telling him a ultimately the temporal sword belongs to the spiritual power, but b it's the, those who exercise the spiritual sword are not permitted to exercise the temporal sword. And yet there seems to be a lot of this uh, swapping backwards and forwards of swords going on in, in medieval Europe. Um, and you seemed more comfortable with that than, than the theory seems to support uh, in, in, when, when you were t in your account of uh, Clement IV's journey to the Sea of St. Peter. It is the case, even in the period I'm talking about and everywhere where I'm, where I'm, that I'm discussing, that the priesthood priests are not allowed to wield the sword. Um, I mean, that is a, <laughs> it, it's against just simply not done or against the rules. Um, and similarly, obviously the laity cannot confect the sacraments. Right. And there's no, there is no confusion on that. Um, in fact, they would go that, further than that comes down to the inquisitor leaving the room while they torture the guy really, doesn't it? I mean, in terms right. of the, of, the, of them not wielding the sword. No, no, no. I will, I will never, I will not <laughs> fall into the mistake of using that as some sort of apologetic for the church. Like, <laughs> I, I think I explicitly, explicitly call that apologetic out as being nonsense, right? Yeah. That, that uh, <laughs> yeah, that, like I said, I think that that's the weird premise that, or principle that the hangman is more guilty than the judge, which seems strange to me. So, um, I mean, obviously what, what, so, but there, there is that. That's that's meaningful that they maintain that distinction, right? I, I, that, that's not what's what grows together are the institutions, um, the institutional arrangement, and this comes from, um, 
I think a convergence. So an attempt, the attempt to convert the world as a whole. Um, and so you might think of it, and I try to in the book, I think think of it as sort of an, an extension of the walls of the monastery to include more and more of, of life, but not as monks, but as you know, it's an, it's an analogy. So that, that as this extends the idea of the pursuit of perfection socially, the institutions that govern society are necessarily including both of these movements, the old and the new, the temporal and the spiritual, right? Nature and grace. And and so there's those institutions, um, they're not, the, the law that they're enforcing is one law, one, one, one law, the new law. And they their, their functions are divvied out and there's different orders of society, but it's not, it, it need not be an institutional division. And it's not, um, for lar- in large part, I mean, part of the reason why it cannot be an institutional is they don't have institutional division is because they don't have the sort of um, self-referential, complete, absolute institutions that we have. Right. That's part of the point of the book is that mm-hmm. this, these, are, these are porous, open ended institutions. And so they can interpenetrate each other at every level. And we're not talking about a theocracy in the modern sense. Right. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Before before we started the podcast, uh, Alan was. Um, poking funny at me because uh, on a previous podcast he he said i waxed uh, nostalgic about the jurisdiction that the abbot of my monastery heiligenkreuz had in the in the um, middle ages our abbey had um had high justice in the lands that belonged to the abbey meaning it was the abbot who signed the death warrants of of uh, convicted criminals right. and alan was saying that that's that doesn't really fit with the theory really you should have the the abbot, um, you know, uh, concerned only with with uh, um, spiritual penalties and so on, and there should be some temporal ruler uh, in that territory who has high justice. How would how would you respond to that? Um, I don't know what should be. Maybe maybe that's prudent. <laughs> I know that the way the hierarchies, the way these things work, would be that one who has holy orders can wield. The temporal, um, but it doesn't work the other way, <laughs> right? Like, well, that's I mean, not in the theory. I mean, I mean, it's 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 it's. Uh, I mean, the theory doesn't say that it doesn't. It only it can work one way, but not the other. I mean, I know that when we when we hear about commendatory abbots and sixteen year old lay bishops and things, we we wince right. much more than when we hear about the abbots of Heiligenkreuz um, uh, dealing with law and order in in the Wienerwald. But but um. Uh, but I, but in in the when you read the theory, it seems to work. It seems to work both ways, and and it seems the theory seems more plausibly incarnational in that you have two, just as in Christ, you have two natures perfectly united without confusion or division. So uh, so in before the before the barbarian migrations meant that the only literate people left were bishops and monks in the west you 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 had the same kind of relationship and still in byzantium while that was going on you had the same kind of relationship between the spiritual power and the temporal power perfect union without confusion or division whereas there seems to be a kind of mingling involved in the sort of situation pastor edmund was describing um uh, but i but i i would i would be Alasius is uh, concern that that if someone has both temporal and spiritual power, they will either actually or at least be suspected of 
using one for the using the wrong one for the sake of the other. Right. I mean, and, and, and do you think that maybe this is the, the prudence of the church then over time is why they have been inclined to, to create more more strict divisions between these things? But what my, my point is not my point is that there's no reason why a priest can't also be a king. In principle. Really? Oh, if he was sinless, like our Lord. I mean, in principle, a priest, you know, the king could be ordained to the priesthood. The, 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 but it, and, and, and that, um, so, so it's conceivable that those would fall on one man, like Adam, like, like the Lord, right? So it's, that, that's, but maybe that's sort of beside the point, except that if we see that um, the, the, the I, I would be hesitant to draw the incarnation, the incarnational um, human divine, distinction too too hard because we are talking everything we're talking about here is human right i mean human beings the the priesthood in the church militant moving through time and space is confecting material sacraments with buildings and men who are eating and are born and are i mean it's not so so the temporal permeates the spiritual um at every level in the church so i I, the church isn't a human power as such i mean the church is a divine power in the sense, I mean, at least in this, in the sense that uh, the word human power is used in Dinktatis Humanae, for example. Well, yeah, I don't, I, I'm not going there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean it. What I mean is that it's, it's a, it, the church militant on earth is, is made up of men. Yeah. Right. And, and of, and of all the things that that implies, I mean, that it's temporal, it's not, um, there isn't a there isn't there in, in this transitory period of men through history the spiritual and the temporal are um, intermingled right at every at every level I would argue. right but I mean this this gets in a way to a question that um, a lot of uh, Thomists have raised about about your book um, which has to do with you know one of the main controversies in Thomism in the in the past century, the controversy over nature and grace. It's yes, all these people are men, um, but one way of of conceiving the the relation between temporal and spiritual power is um, with respect to two common goods. You say there is the common good um, of the divine nature in which we share through grace, and to it, and we we participate in that nature through uh, the sacraments, which are the instrumental causes of grace in the human soul. Um, and you say, okay, the, this, uh, the spiritual power, the priests who, who wield that authority, they are directly um, concerned with what is directly ordered to that common good, the common good of divine nature. But then you also have a, a, a human nature that's not destroyed by grace. It's elevated and perfected by grace. And there is a temporal common good, which is uh, the, the natural happiness of the life of the virtues. And that is sort of uh, disposes you to the reception of grace, but it doesn't uh, cause um, supernatural grace. And you'd, the, the way of conceiving it would be, well, the... The wielder of the temporal sword, um, he's directly concerned with what's ordered to that temporal common good of human nature. And he has to 
in a certain way, subordinate that common good to the supernatural common good. So he has to order um, temporal peace, temporal happiness in such a way that it, it helps people to receive the, the supernatural good of participation in divine nature that comes through the sacraments. But his, um, his authority derives uh, from the natural common good, whereas the authority of the priest derives from the supernatural common good. And the, those two are, are related, but again, they're without um, confusion. Um, and it seems like Alan's questions, um, you could understand them as, as saying, well, isn't this, this having one person exercise roles uh, in both sort of lose that uh, distinction of two goods? I wonder, though, and, that, and again, I, I, I hate to say this, but I always kind of have to, is that, is that I, am, I, am a, I am a historian rather than, than, a, than a real systematic theologian, right? So when I, when I work, when I start delving too big into this, it, it is a bit of an amateur endeavor. So I hope you are charitable. But the, the, um, the distinction, what I would be hesitant to do is to attempt to line up distinctions too rigidly. So here's what I mean. Um, the old law, following Thomas here, the old law, we would say, okay, there's kings and there's priests, right? But but Thomas says that both of them are specifying the natural law. One, in so much, the so the, so the judicial precepts are specifying it with relation to man's love for each other and the ceremonial precepts for man's love for God. But both of these are, are the natural law being specified um, and there's there's priests who, who who sort of govern the ceremonial, and there's kings that govern the judicial, but not those aren't hard lines between these things. Um, and so you have you have in the old law the functions of priest and king, or at least sort of anticipations of them. And we're not getting that hard um, nature grace division there, right? And and I think that when you move into the new law, you want to be careful not. That I, at least when you read Thomas, he's not he, nature and grace is underpinning the work, of course, right? There's no doubt about that. But I'm not so sure that it's underpinning the way he's understanding law um, and the functioning of different offices within law. So, so the spiritual and the temporal powers make appearances in Thomas's work directly only in reference to the specification of the, the natural or divine law in human law, that there are two different types of human lawgivers. And, and, and it's in passing, right, that he does this. And so I, I, I think it's true that, that you have in, I, I think the division that if you want to, the, the, the division between a better division between the um, spiritual and the temporal would be to look at it as the old and the new, which in, which includes a lot of the nature and grace discussion that we're talking about, but in a in a le, but in a more muddied way. Both nature and grace are present in the old. Both nature and grace are present in the new, right? And and the spiritual and the temporal sort of run from top to bottom. They're present. They're present in the beginning. They're present in the end. And and they're they're um they're they 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 maybe change their functions or their relative positions to each other, but they're not 
Um, but they're always coexisting, right? <laughs> and, well, St. Thomas, Thomas makes this argument in the De Regno. He starts off with talking about kingship in a, in a, in a natural way. And then he sort of, I know it's an in, unfinished work, but he, insofar as it survives, he climaxes with this argument that truly the one who is to be called king is the one who can bring the multitude to their final end. Right. And because that final end uh, surpasses nature in this world, um, therefore the, the, the only one who truly fully qualifies for the title of king is Christ himself. And then he says... Thus, in order that spiritual things might be distinguished from earthly things, the ministry of this kingdom has been entrusted not to earthly kings, but to priests, and most of all to the chief priest, the successor of St. Peter, the vicar of Christ, the Roman pontiff. To him, all the kings of the Christian people are to be subject as to our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Right. So he, he seems to think that, that the relationship between the two orders is, is and, and, the, and the surpassing nature of the uh, of the of the end to which man is actually uh, called in this order of providence is is um, is crucial to the distinction between the the clergy and the laity and between temporal rulers and spiritual rulers. And I was when I was reading your book, I was I was reminded of an argument Christopher Dawson makes as to why Charlemagne was crowned emperor in eight hundred. He argues that Charlemagne was was becoming was was trying to appropriate both swords and that the title king was too dangerous and then this tendency he had of having himself be called David was was he speculates making Leo the third very nervous um, uh, that, that Western Christendom was going to be transformed into some sort of caliphate and that he precisely wanted to give Charlemagne the title Roman Emperor because it had for a very traditional reason for which the title was originally instituted, that it, in a certain sense it's a lower title than the title of king, and it kept the temporal and lay order properly properly slotted in underneath the spiritual and clerical order, rather than the Pope <laughs> ending up as chaplain for the Western Christian Caliph. You know, the... what what uh, Where am I going to go? The problem... One of the problems is is trying to lock down the meanings of things. So if, if the papacy is, so I'm going to Innocent III, late 12th century into the 13th century, that the papacy holds the fullness of kingship, but the fullness in the same way as it does the fullness of the priesthood, but the fullness of kingship is, is the redeemed um, new law kingship, not, not and, the, and which fulfills the kingship of the old law. It's, 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 it's fulfillment, but the, but the kingship that enforces law that wields wars, that's the kingship of the old law. This, this is what innocent argues in that. And so that when he's talking to Kings, he's, he is assigning them that role in the economy of salvation is that you are the Kings, you know, of, of basically of the old law and that I hold the fullness of kingship, which is the, which is the reestablishment of the, of, of the, the, the ministry of Melchizedek, Melchizedek, the, the, the reuniting of the priesthood and the kingship. But it's precisely because he has that fullness of kingship that he doesn't wield the sword because the sword is, is not the fullness of kingship, right? So there's, it, it, I, I want, I want, in order to articulate what I'm getting at, we have to allow for that sort of dynamic hierarchical fulfillment that you see between the testaments and not try to make a constitution 
where there are kings and priests and they have relationships to each other that are stable. Like I don't, I, I think that's a, a, a misunderstanding of what the people in the Middle Ages, what they were getting at, right, when they talked about these things. <laughs> that's a, okay, we, we, we uh, are, sadly, we're running out of time, but um, I mean, we, we've gone over our usual time of an hour anyways. Mm. But before we end, I did want to speak a little bit about uh, what are sort of the consequences for us as Catholics living in 2018 um, and thinking about how the sort of modern world has progressed and this impersonal uh, understanding of, um, of law and political community has ever more sort of destroyed the, the peace that you talk about, you know, you would talk about atomization and um, individualism and so on. And in, and in part, that is a consequence of the kind of um, Weberian bureaucracies of state and economy that we live under. Um, so what, what do we do now? Yeah. One of the wonderful things about being a historian is that we get to we get a little cop out that we say that sounds like someone else's problem, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> but it is a cop out, of course. Um, you know, it, you know, I've been thinking about this, and I one of the things that that I've revealed, what I what I has come what I've come to understand is that um, things like knowing your neighbor. Uh, talking to them, like being friends with them, helping them yeah. is a political act. Because when you do that, you're forming a realm of human existence, a social space that the state knows nothing about, can't say anything about, doesn't see, isn't in control of. And more of that weakens the sovereignty of the state. So it, the sovereign, the sovereignty of the state is the, the actual sovereign of the state, like the realized sovereignty of the state is extended to the extent that we come to approximate what modern sovereignty supposes human nature to be. <laughs> so the nastier we become, the more contractual we become, the more self-interested we become, the more we view each other in the, in, in the sort of way that modern political theory stipulates that human beings are, the more the modern politics become actually becomes in reality what it claims itself to be. Um, and so undermining that, uh, I mean, that might sound a little revolutionary. I don't know, but like, like it, knowing each other and, and solving our problems um, internally, I think St. Paul has something to say about this and, and not running off, not running off to the state, right. <laughs> might be something to do. <laughs> I was struck also when reading your book. Um, it, it dug up this memory of uh, a um, when I was a child. I first asked my parents what the state was, and they gave me the Weberian definition. <laughs> and I was really suspicious of this. <laughs> uh, I knew we had a queen and we had a government, and I didn't know why we needed this state thing. What it was, it was actually the <laughs> That's excellent. Well, thank you so much, both of you, Alan and Andrew. Thank you for coming on. It was really wonderful to speak to you. I, I loved, absolutely loved your book, and uh, we could keep on talking about it for hours. But um, 